And I, I remember where we were. We were we were very young, and we were driving down to Anaheim in my car, and we were talking. And he looked at me and he said, "Why would you be ordinary when you can be extraordinary?" And I think that is a model for his life. Um, so he that it was just he was authentic. It was a genuine goal in his life, just to always look for that extraordinary moment and being extraordinary in what you do. I think that's that's maybe the lesson I've kept with me. Why be ordinary if you can be extraordinary, yeah. Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. Welcome singers and singing teachers. You are listening to the Sing Coach Conduct podcast. I'm your host, Megan Ferrison. My guest in this episode is composer arranger Mac Huff, a man who, when asked what he does for a living, proudly refers to himself as an educational arranger. Mac is a classically trained pianist who was always writing on the side and found his niche in arranging pop and Broadway standards for choral ensembles. In this episode, we learn what great teaching can do through stories Mac shares about many of the people in his life who have had a significant impact on him personally and professionally. Enjoy. Well, hello, Mac Huff. It is so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. It's my, it's my pleasure. We're going to get um, started talking about you. You know, you've already given me the title of your episode in our pre-interview when you said it's what great teaching can do. And so you're going to get into all these wonderful stories about how all these people have had an impact on your life. Uh, But before we do that, um, I do want to talk a little bit about you. So um, your very first published piece is called One Fine Morning, and I would love to hear the story of how that came to be. Well, um, my family moved to Wisconsin um, when I was just out of just starting high school. And so we moved very close to Howlander Publication and at that point, Jensen Publications. They were just down the road. So I met people from there and um, this was through Jensen Publications in 1980. Um, They gave me my first assignment. I had done other things that they had rejected, but this was the first thing that actually got into print. So... That was that was it. 1980. That seems like eons ago, but uh, yeah, it's the I, teachers will remember those big yellow covers that Jensen used to have on all their pop music. So um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, do you remember that? Yeah. So <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yes. So where did the inspiration for that come from? You know, that I, I was working with a man named Jim Kimmel, who's still around. Hey, Jim, if you're out there, and um, he was the one that said this is. You know, it's a piece that crosses over, that sings chorally, but yet is has a, is in a pop nature, which you I always look for. Mm. So um, that's kind of how it grew. And then we just started publishing all kinds of things after that. So, um, when you look back on that very first piece that you mm-hmm. had published, and mm-hmm. you look at what you're doing now, how have you grown as a composer? What things do you look back on and go, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe that I did that," or <laughs> these aha moments? Oh, that's such a good question because you know I'm never happy, and I'm always changing and growing. I can look back two years and see, you know, I wouldn't do this now; I would do this now. Um, so I, it's. Um, 
Well, tell me more about that. When you're talking about this or that, I want to know what the this or that's are. Well, um, sometimes um, the I get I what I get to do is I get to go up in front of uh, and, and record everything in the studio. I produce all my things, so that's always interesting. That you're sitting home arranging is a very lonely uh, business. You know, I'm all by myself, and even though I'm playing back and, and thinking, so I will get up in front of singers then and hear it being created. And these guys sight read on site and just create the music, which is amazing. Um, but many times I'll say, you know what? That's not as successful as I thought it was going to be. Why is that? Um, so that happens a lot. So when you first start hearing it, but also um, I'll get up in front of kids and realize, you know, that voice leading in the tenor part could have been better, or they're going to be more mm-hmm. successful singing this line than that line. And so I'm constantly changing and growing that way. And it really depends on the piece of music. That's the nice thing about arranging. It's never the same piece of music. It's never the same chord changes. Uh, so it's uh, always trying to be better and better at it and more successful. I mean, my goal with kids is to be authentic, but yet to have them be successful at what they do. I try to arrange for success. Mm-hmm. So that's a never-ending thing. I, it used to drive my publishers crazy because I would be sitting in a, I would sit in a hall and listening to one of my arrangements being sung, and I would go, "That's what I should have done at that spot." <laughs> <laughs> Darn! <laughs> and you can't go back. You can't go back and change it, can you? This may, be, t- this may be in print for ten years, and you go, finally, you realize, oh, that's that moment that I really wasn't sure what I. That's what I should have done, you know. So. It's a never-ending <laughs> thing, but that—that's what's exciting about it. It's never, never dull moment, you know. <laughs> mm, I love it. I love it. How would you describe your music to to other people? That's a good question. I have a lot of non-music people that are very confused about what I do <laughs> for a living. But you know, I'm a classically trained musician who always, since age 15, wrote choral music with pop Broadway standards use that as my, as my, um, the music that I would arrange. And so I've always been that person that sort of crossed over. Um, mm-hmm. and I never taught. However, I wrote so much for so many kids at that age, 15, 16, 17. To, to non-musicians, we, we kind of think, well, did you see Glee? Do you know what that's all about? You know, then, then they have something to grab <laughs> on to, right? But I, I'm, I'm writing for education. Uh, I'm an educational arranger, and I love saying that to people. And here's a funny story. I, w- I was waiting for a friend who was in a film scoring class, and there, there was a room full of composers that were writing for film. And they introduced me, and they asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I'm an educational arranger. And they looked at me like, what does that exactly mean? <laughs> so I, I just don't write whatever comes into my brain. I, I, I start to be creative, but then at the same time, how do I make this work? For, what, for instance, I'm, there's a series we do at Howl called the Discovery Series, which is a very beginning uh, choir. I write mm-hmm. totally different for them than I would write for a high school choir or a community chorus. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm taking this music and making it live for, the, for these different groups, but we're doing it in such a way that they'll be successful at it. What is, what's your favorite piece that you've done so far? I, I have real trouble answering those kinds of questions. <laughs> Usually, I mean, the glib answer would be the last one, <laughs> you know, the last one I arranged. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if I had to choose, I mean, I, I, I'm musical theater, I guess, is the thing that I most love. 
Um, and I get to work on, um, for instance, I did a, a medley from West Side Story and got to work with the Bernstein people and going back and forth Aww. with them. And that was so exciting. It took two years to get it into print. Yeah, um, yeah. The challenge with that was, the first thing they told me was, you cannot write a note that Lenny would not have written. So if you write something in here, you got to show me where it is in one of his scores. And I literally had to take all the scores to all his shows, or I took West Side and took all the music from West Side Story and had to tell them how I was going to arrange it, how I was going to put it together. Um, so that is a really lovely challenge. And even though it took two years to come into print, I was really pleased with the out outcome. So, so did you get to work directly with Leonard Bernstein? Then? No, he wasn't alive then. He was not alive. But they, no, this was just this was like the last ten years. So got okay. Got yeah, it, yeah, yeah, got yeah. It. Well, it's the way you said you said Lenny, like yeah. you know, you go. Well, you that's go the, way back. That's yeah. them talking. That's them talking to me. <laughs> I see. I see. And, you know, I do. Get, it's really interesting. Teachers should know this. We do work directly with Stephen Schwartz, with Stephen Sondheim. They comment on things, which is kind of interesting. And I've become friends like with Stephen Schwartz. I've become friends with. He's just a great guy and believes in what we do. And he will look at one of my arrangements and he goes, wow, I never thought of that. Let's oh, do this. Neat. Or there was a one instance where he wrote new lyrics for me because we, I had taken the, anytime you take an arrangement out of context and you don't have this story and all that around it, sometimes mm -hmm. the lyrics don't make sense. Mm -hmm. And he literally changed the lyric for something that I did. Oh my I gosh! Getting, I remember getting letters saying, "These are not the lyrics," and I want to say, "Well, yes, they are." <laughs> what an incredible, like, um, just kind of a thing to happen on an offshoot, you know, for for working and for him to say, you know, that like right. that was a great thing that you did, and I'm going to change something now. Yeah, the great thing about musical theater is that there's a story and something happened before the song was sung and something happens in the, as a result of the song. And there's all of this backstory, which are, is a great teaching thing, but it also inspires me as an arranger as well. I, I wonder, you know, do you feel comfortable talking about yourself, Mac? Because our whole interview was going to be about other people. And then I surprised you by saying, we're going to talk about you. Oh, oh <laughs> so. sure. Oh, sure. I, I, yeah, I always think, what am I going to talk about? But then I always end up finding something. <laughs> who are your, who are your uh, biggest um, musical influences as far as when you're writing? Who, whose voices, whose writing voices are in your head? Boy, that's a good question. Um, a lot of people are up in my head, I guess, you know. Um, uh, I think of my high school choral director, believe it or not, Kurt Schalgren, mm -hmm. who's no longer with us, who he was the guy that said, why don't you try writing a vocal arrangement of this and we'll sing it. So, and I did a lot with him, and then as the University of Wisconsin, I went there and he was also a director of the Wisconsin Singer, so he had a lot of influence on my writing really early that I think I still draw from. Mm, um, that's great. And so yeah. you've, I mean, you've been doing this a long time and this goes back to your father, who is a right. famous barber shopper. Believe yeah? it or not, I'm a junior. This is, that was Matt Cuff Sr. Um, yeah, my dad, we, when we moved to Kenosha, Wisconsin, the reason we moved there, at that point, that's when the international headquarters of barber shoppers was located. And my dad was on the staff, supposedly head of quartet activity, and he was gone every two out of three weeks a month doing mm. lectures and doing workshops and clinics and things. So we, there was a lot of vocal music in my house all the time. There would be international championship quartets he would be coaching. There would, I would come home from high school and they would be in my living room, you know, singing. And uh, 
we uh, I don't know if you know what a tag is in barbershop. It's the you know it's the last eight bars that they rewrite and make it a big chord, whatever. Um, we would sit at the dinner table and we couldn't get up until we sang a tag. Mm-hmm. So and sometimes <laughs> we were not very happy about that. But my dad had this a great ability to think linearly, so he could look at look at the bass and say, sing this, ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now look at the tenor, sing this, da-da-da-da. And then we'd all sing it together, and of course it all fit harmonically. You know? Wow. So, yeah, so it was, it was crazy, and I, I thought, yeah, this is probably what I'm going to do for a living. <laughs> where, did your, um, where did your dad get it from? What's his story? He, was, he went to Indiana State University and um, was a music major there. Uh, when we were living in Indiana, he was the director of the local chorus. He did a lot of, he was singing a quartet called the Fantastic Four back when I was growing up. And so he, he was just kind of known as a local guy that sang, sang at church. He was a musical director at, at church. So I did a lot mm-hmm. of playing and singing there as well. United Methodist. So, um, that's probably my, that's probably where I got, he got it all from, I think. So just, and then when he was traveling all over the world lecturing, it was, you know, then he, he became a a celebrity. (laughs) Oh, wow. What about your mom? Well, my mom, yeah, my mom, um, I remember her doing the lead and sweet charity when I was in high school. I mean, (laughs) so she all, she, she wasn't as, as, as involved as my father was, but still, and they were incredibly supportive whatever I wanted to do so I was very Mm -hmm. lucky Mm -hmm. so keep telling me I mean we've got this great start you've got your your dad and your mom both music very musical people your dad's traveling the world doing these all the all these amazing things did you ever feel intimidated by that like I mean was there ever a time that instead of wanting to go towards it you thought man how am I how am I ever going to do this? Or, I mean, or was it always just a, a green light for you? Well, because I was studying the piano, I was going to be a classical musician. I was going to play the piano for a lot, for a living. So it was, I think it was enough removed that I wasn't that intimidated, but I, I loved what my father did and I was very proud of what he did. Uh, but I went to study with trying to find really great teachers to study with. And I was playing Bach and Mozart and Beethoven, Prokofiev that sort of thing that's where I was that was my world at that point and Mm -hmm. writing on the side always Mm -hmm. writing you know when I went to the University of Wisconsin they had a show group called the Wisconsin Singers it's 90 minutes of music and I wrote that show for 18 years and I even directed a couple years so that's a lot of that's where I really learned to write I tell people just because it was a safe place to fail <laughs> right Every, safe... everybody needs that everybody needs that no kidding I mean I can remember mm. times where I would pass out a piece of music we would start it and I'd say let's just pass that in <laughs> you know and those are the yep. days without computers so there was a lot of erasing and a lot of starting over Ooh. going on <laughs> computers make it so uh. much easier <laughs> what so okay so you're studying then you're studying piano and, and who was right. your piano teacher can you say the name again sure well i had several i had carol chilton at the university of wisconsin and then i got my master's at the university of texas in austin and i went to study with john perry john perry is mm-hmm. one of a handful of really great well-known international teachers that that i actually did two summers at the aspen music festival with him as well Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was very lucky. I was the only person. I was the only person he took that year that I got into his studio, and I remember walking into a, my first master class, and there were people sitting there. They all had agents. They were playing with orchestras. They had, you know, it was interesting to hear them talking how what they had in their fingers. I've got the Beethoven third and 
fifth in my fingers right now, but I'm not so sure. I may need to. It was it was incredible. It was like a whole new world. And I, and in fact, I went through a period where I didn't think I could play the piano. I couldn't. I was afraid to touch it because I was around all of this. But you know, and that's how, a, how long had you been playing at that point, Mac? Well, I mean, I, three years old. I mean, piano was purchased yeah. at three. I started taking lessons from a teacher at five. Mm-hmm. So, and how often were you practicing? <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> I hated to practice. I was that I was that little boy with the you know the face up against the window watching them play football in the yard, and I had to practice the piano. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so you so you actually had some anxiety then in college. I guess I did. Yeah, it's the discipline. I love to perform, but it was the preparation, you know. And actually, what happened as I got older, I learned how to practice and be more efficient with my practicing. Because practice makes permanent, <laughs> you know, not perfect. <laughs> so tell me some lessons that you, you took away from your time with John. Oh, boy. He was one of the greatest teachers I've ever seen in that he could say one thing and correct five things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Or he could give you, he could work on something but would not destroy what you already brought to the piece. Sometimes teaching undoes the good stuff <laughs> because you're trying to get to something else. And he was so good at that. Just He was very verbal and uh, very dynamic. Um, he would, um, you know, if I, like I was playing a Beethoven sonata, he would say, you know, in a Beethoven symphony, a very similar moment, would, and he would sit down and play. Or then he would say, but Richard Rogers wrote this piece, and he did this here, and he would correlate a lot of things, whether it's, whether it's harmony or structure or something that he would coordinate popular music in with classical music. So mm-hmm. I thought, I, I, I found my teacher, <laughs> you know, he, mm-hmm. and he got what I did. He, I, I remember walking into the studio once and he had one of my choral arrangements out on the piano and he was playing the piano part. Freaked me out. I went, he goes, this is really good. Why aren't you doing this? I remember telling me that. <laughs> And you were like, well, actually, and you didn't know at this point, though, that you were not going to be a pianist, right? You still thought that maybe that was going to happen? Or when did you make that decision? Well, that's a weird story. You know, it's sort of karmic. Oh, please, please tell it. (laughs) Well, I did. After I got my master's, John Perry went to the University of Southern California, USC. So I followed him there and started a doctoral. There's a difference between working on your doctorate and being in the doctoral program. I was merely Mm. in the doctoral program in order to keep studying with him, but I got mm-hmm. an assistantship and was teaching um, teaching piano majors applied skills, teaching them to score read and transpose and improvise. So I was kind of doing that on the side with Mr. Perry, and um, I realized at that point that academia was not for me. I was on a search committee. I did, I did certain things that I know you had to do because I thought what I would do is I would get a college teaching job, continue to play and see, maybe have an agent at some point and maybe play uh, concerts and that kind of thing. But I knew I had, would have to teach. I got the taste of academia and I just thought, you know, I just don't know if I want to do this. So I entered a major piano competition called the I'm a Hog competition in, the, uh, in Houston, Texas. I'm, I'm a hog. I'm Is a that hog. What yeah, I'm a hog. That's who it was. The hog family, you know, benefactors of the arts, and uh, yeah, and and so that, I know that's the funny. It's not funny in Houston, but but everybody says my, my father had the best line. She goes, "That must have been her pen name." Which oh. <laughs> but, but anyway, I entered this competition, and it was from all over the world, and I won playing the Prokofiev Third. Mm. 
and which really complicated things because I thought, okay, now I'm winning competitions and I still don't know if I want to do this. And I was literally came, was coming home after winning that competition and put my bags on the front porch. This is when we didn't have cell phones, so my phone was ringing inside my house. I ran in and it was a man named Jim Bates, a producer, choreographer, that says, I have this great opportunity, a series of dinner theaters. I want you to musical direct. I want you to do all the arranging. And I went, okay, well, there's my decision right there. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. did end up playing the Prophet of Third with the Houston Symphony oh. that summer, but it was everything I could do to keep it in my fingers because I knew that I had, in my mind, made the decision that I was going to write and arrange for a living and musical direct. So, so you saw that moment as a as a kismet moment, like I, it. Was, I did. You know. I, in retrospect, at the time, I was still a little bit confused, but as I look back on it, I realized, yeah, that's that's how, why that happened. Mm. And so I mean, I I got out of school and just started as a working musician in Los Angeles. Hmm. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, teachers will find this interesting. I was already creating a more income just working in Los Angeles than I would if I would have been teaching in Arkansas or teaching in, you know what I'm saying? I thought, okay, what's wrong with this picture? I, I just wanted to be happy and I wanted to use my gifts the best way I could. So I figured with the mm-hmm. classical background and the approaching vocal arranging was what I should do. Mm. So. So who did you come across next? Who ended up being another influencer or person that helped guide you in your life? Well, one of my greatest influences was at the University of Texas. And this is, I'll backtrack just a little bit because uh, a lady named Amanda Vick Lethko really changed my world about education and about teaching. She was the piano pedagogy teacher at the University of Texas. And she was just an amazing Southern woman, bigger than life. I remember walking into the first day of class and she was quoting the Bible and quoting Bob Dylan and quoting, I mean, and I'm like, who is this woman? I got, I have to know her. And then she would say to us, you know, I don't have to be doing this. And we, because I own, I would be on the French Riviera, she would always say to us. And then we found out that she became, she was part of a very, very wealthy, wealthy family. Mm. But what she cared about were how hand position for little kids. That's all she cared about. They're, you know, they're playing with a flat hand. We have to get them a cur- curved hand. I mean, so mm-hmm. her authenticity, her enthusiasm, her conta- it was a contagious enthusiasm, which I love. Mm-hmm. That's a good teaching to me is a c- contagious enthusiasm. And that's what she taught me. She was the real deal. So being around her. And so lucky me, she said, you know, I travel in the summer and do workshops all over the world. Would you like to come with me as my assistant? I'm like, yes, (laughs) I will do that. He allowed me to play. She let me do my own little lectures, but I would watch her work every day. She never looked at a note. She never dropped a word. She linearly thinking and teachers. She was just a an amazing influence on me. And so I still think of Amanda Vick and I still stayed close with her until her death. Yeah, if anybody's taught piano, creating music from Alfred is mm-hmm. is Anna Mandovic Lethko and Willard Palmer. So mm-hmm. she was amazing. Um, good teaching is good teaching is arranging success. Mm. That's what she used to say. That I think that influenced me as a vocal writer a lot. What an incredible thing to say! I'm going to go do this thing. You know, I'm going to go travel, and mm. I'm going to bring you with me. 
Sure. I mean, when I think of, you know, teaching now, uh, that must seem like such a foreign concept to, I think, a <laughs> lot of teachers. Like, right. <laughs> I mean, to even, well, get to travel right now right. is a foreign of course, concept. Of course, of course. The other part of that, which is kind of interesting, is mm-hmm. I, tra- I did two, three summers with her. And then the fourth summer, she decided she wanted to get off the road. But I already knew the people at this workshop. They knew me. And they invited me back. And I said, okay, well, here's my fee and here's my expenses. And they went, wait a minute. We never paid you. Mm. I said, why? Amanda paid my way the whole time. Oh, wow. So I cornered her. Because <laughs> I was I was saying, why, did you, why didn't you tell me that you were doing this? And she said something to me that has stayed with me the rest of my life. She said, I did it for you so that you'll do it for someone else. Oh. And I've given that gift many, many times. And I think of her. So, um, yeah, she was a big influence. What a beautiful human being. Yeah, yeah, she was. Uh, she was a real deal. Tell me a story about when you were traveling. What it was, uh, where did you go when you traveled around with her? Um, we did everything from the Kamehameha schools in Honolulu, overlooking Honolulu. We had the amazing mm-hmm. space. Um, Innsbruck, Austria, Bolzano, Italy, Milan, um, where else? It was kind of in that area. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess that would be it. So you said you got to present. So you were watching her, but you also do some presentations. She did. Um, yeah. That's odd. That's amazing. Did you ever have anything not go well? Did you, what was, was there ever <laughs> like a lull? Well, no, I, I remember playing, I just remember playing a, uh, the Barber Sonata, which is, I couldn't even, con- the concept of playing it now is beyond me. <laughs> but I was playing them, but I was playing it outside. I was um, playing it in, a, in a, like a courtyard in Italy. It was the greatest setting. But when you're playing outside, there are other things that can happen other than wrong <laughs> notes, like birds landing on the piano and, and people talking from the street and all. <laughs> I remember that being, well, this is kind of interesting. I can barely play this piece. And now, they're, and now I'm dealing with all these external things that are happening around me. <laughs> That's kind of, I mean, that's a funny story. That's yeah. a very, like, yes, very light sort of thing. I don't know how you were feeling in the moment, though. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, Panics beyond be... belief was what I was doing. Oh, just, okay. just trying to keep up. You know, there, I uh, played the Bar- Bartok Piano Concerto with the USC Symphony that still plays on the FM radio every once in a while. I used to be at home, and they would come on, and I'd listen to myself playing something, thinking... I couldn't even approach this right now. It's, mm. you know, if you don't, if you don't use it, you lose it. And that's really sure. You don't keep <laughs> practicing. <laughs> now, wasn't, uh, there was a choreographer too, somewhere in here that, that was an influence. Well, um, Jim, which... Jim Bates and the, anybody that's worked in Los Angeles, that's done musical theater or that has done theme park or whatever, they know Jim and Judy, Judy's his wife. And they were just great people that I, I got to do Jim's music for about 15 years and mm-hmm. we did hundreds and hundreds of shows. Um, you know, he had this background of being born and raised in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I tell people just go to Easter parade. And then in the first 15 minutes, little Jimmy Bates at three years old is dancing with Fred Astaire. That's Jim Bates. Wow. I know. And no so kidding. He, was, he was part of that cadre of dancers in the 50s and 60s, Chimney Sweep and Mary Poppins, Belly Up to the Bar Boys and, and, and Unsinkable Molly Brown, uh, the Bye Bye Birdie. 
he be, then he became a choreographer to a lot of stars and did the Lucy show. And remember when the Lucy show came into color and they would do these big productions, mm. he would stage those. And then he was staging artists all over the world. Um, then he started a group called the Kids Next Door, which was a pop show group in early 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Fred Waring probably was doing pop music before anybody was doing pop music. But Jim was doing what we could, would consider a show choir back in the early 60s. He was the choreographer mm-hmm. of the Young Americans. The Kids Next Door became the Kids of the Kingdom at Disney. Mm, okay. So, so when I started working with Jim, he had this incredible background, but everything was instinctual. He would sit, to him, I think music was motion and coming or going. And there was always moments where are the, he would ask me, where are the moments in this piece? Where are we building mm-hmm. to and where are we coming away from? Just basic structural things. I don't think he could describe musically, but he could describe in a way that I got musically. So here I am, book learned, and he's more instinctual, mm-hmm. but it was a great marriage. Uh, and I learned a lot from him how to write, how to make things work on stage. You know, Tell me more about that, how that transferred, what you learned from him, how that transferred into your writing and into your work. Well, we were doing things all at once. So I... I remember, you'll love this story, I, we had a dinner theater in St. Louis on the Robert E. Lee, right under the arch, and it was six singer-dancers, and they would serve the meals and sing and dance and do a whole show. And this is how, where I really learned to write fast, is that I would go, I would watch the show and do notes that night of an old show, but the next morning I was rehearsing a new show. Nothing had been written yet. Jim and I were sitting at dinner going, well, we're going to do this and this and that. I would Mm -hmm. stay up all night, write for the rehearsal that next morning, Mm -hmm. hand it out. We would sing it and Jim would go, you know what would work better here? What better here? Again, no computers. So I'm either erasing or I'm cutting and pasting over and I'm running to the copy machine. But, (laughs) But doing it like that and then we would rehearse up until a point where they had to get ready and do the old show and I would sit and watch the old show, and then we would talk more about what's next. And um, so, and he he did everything on his feet too. He got he would get in front of a group and not really know where he was going. He would just start to create. But when you're that talented, you know he he could do it. But I learned to write under those circumstances and learned a lot from him. But you know you have to sometimes you have to go with your first idea in those situations. Mm. But then you would write and rewrite. And then that was easy because I had a, a cast of six there that was that was easier than having a whole group. So I could change one person's solo or change mm-hmm. out this line in the tenor part. Or I could just make changes that were pretty easy to make. But I didn't sleep for six years when I was oh. doing that. <laughs> now, teachers, teachers feel so, um, you know, under pressure all the time to achieve right. things very quickly at a high level. Right. How, when I listen to you talk about having to write, you know, get something done that quickly, mm-hmm. um, how do you, how did you manage your, your, your mental state, your emotional state? How did you keep yourself in the game to say, I'm going to get this done and to say, this is good enough rather than just, you know, you, I think you're the guy that said nothing is good enough right, and everything's right. got to be better. So how do you get yourself in that mindset to be like, this is good and you just to get it done and have that, you Well, know, sometimes you needed it. to do that just, just to get it in front of, front of and say, you, sometimes I would suspect that this is, I need, I need one more verse here. This is not really scoring. I, it needs a setup to the core. Something would happen, but I would go ahead and write mm-hmm. it. 
get up in front of a group and I went, yes, I'm right. So I would just insert new parts or insert a new section or I would just play with it until we, really, literally until we opened, I would keep changing it. Mm. I, in, the, in those kind of situations, I'm writing for individuals too. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a tenor that I know what his range is and what he can do and can't do. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was also sc- scoring it. You know, that's not the case when I write for publication. Um, you know, many times I find myself writing for that middle of the road high school, mm-hmm. whatever that is, you know, or the middle school choir that has changing voices in the men or, you know what I'm saying? I'm, or mm-hmm. I'm writing for an elementary class that's never sung harmony before. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. So I, um, I just, I just keep at it. And so I was able to do that publication. Not so much, you know, you, you have to, like I said, well, at some point you've got to go, okay, it's in print, leave it, go, go to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, it, it seems like you kind of carry this, um, innate, uh, confidence, uh, where I feel like some people would be under pressure and feel like, oh my God, like perfectionists, like mm-hmm. would, you know, uh, it feels like it would be a nightmare for a perfectionist to have to get something done that right. quickly. But I wonder if you just, for you, um, have you always kind of felt confident enough in your skill to be like, you know what, it, I can change it. I can make it better. But for right now, you know, it'll work. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I had that, that ability. And as you do it more, you become more confident. I don't think I was confident at the beginning. But, mm-hmm. you know, I was young and youth is a great thing. <laughs> youth and caffeine <laughs> are two great things when you're young like that. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I liked the challenge of it, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, I don't know if I was so aware of how much I was learning. Sometimes that's an after effect. You know, you look at it 10, 15 years mm-hmm. down the road. I'll look at an old chart and go, oh, yeah, I remember when I used to do write like this. <laughs> I have a whole story just writing with pencil. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so you can imagine how, how uh, computers changed my life. Mm. You could go with mm-hmm. your first idea on a computer because it's easy that if it didn't work, you just put it in a file and stick it over here yep. and maybe you'll come back to it later, you know, and then you go to something new, you know. So that that's computers are a good thing in that respect. So. How many times did you write a piece that, and you just didn't even use it, or you just said, "Nope, this isn't working"? Oh, like, how, I've got a piece sitting. Often? I've got a piece sitting right here that was written right at the beginning of the pandemic that no one has seen. Oh, <laughs> it was a commission, and I was supposed to mm-hmm. go and conduct, which I I love to do. Five hundred kids in a gym in a gymnasium singing mm-hmm. this new piece that they had commissioned for before, and. Um, I, it got canceled, obviously, because of the pandemic, and we're still trying to find time to do it, to premiere it, but no one even knows about it, and it's just sitting here, and I still will pull it out and still go, you know, I'm going to do this here and that here, I'm going to kind of, I'm still kind of tinkering with it, I guess. Uh, it's an original mm-hmm. piece, you know, and I don't, I don't write a lot of original music, so it takes me forever. I have such respect for composers, because arranging sometimes is a skill set that you can sort of get things on paper without necessarily being incredibly inspired. I try, I work from inspiration, but when you're writing something original, uh, it's a much different thing than, than arranging. Mm. So, and I don't do do it that much. I always tell people I'm an arranger who writes originals. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike somebody like a Roger Emerson or Christie, Carrie Miller, they write a lot more originals than I do. And they write for different, you know, uh, Roger taught middle school. So he, he, he is the king of that middle school choral, you know, so. 
and by the way, we're all great friends. We're, it's kind of fun. We're all great friends, and we talk uh, our industry all the time together, which is lovely. Yeah, you guys have a, like a like a writing support group, right? <laughs> you know what we do, and not many people. We have we've kept it kind of secret because it happened literally last March when the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. It's our th- we call it our Thursday Zoom. Ah, that's and great. Thursday at three thirty. It's our therapy, is what we like to say. Mm-hmm. Initially, these were going to be people that I would see during the summer, passing at an airport or doing a workshop together or handing it all workshop off to somebody, people like Rollo Dilworth and John Jacobson. And so we decided that because we weren't going to see each other in the summer and everything was going to be virtual, that we would do something virtual. And mm-hmm. believe it or not, we have not missed a Thursday and it's been a year and a half. That's so awesome. It's great. We all, oh, we all need that connection. We need no. something like that. We'll go, we'll go so. an hour and not even talk music. You know, we'll, we talk about our lives and talk about, you know, we're mm-hmm. friends and we've gotten to know each other so well over the years. But at the same time, things are happening left and right. I mean, the, the choral industry, the in, instrumental choral in, industry is taking a huge hit because no one sang last year or sang very mm-hmm. little. And we're not sure where it's moving now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's a scary moment. I'm hearing teachers becoming a little more confident and going out and buying more music and starting more things with groups and things, whereas of last September, it wasn't the case at all. Mm-hmm. It was all going to be virtual. And uh, so we tried to, we did some voice class things. We were answering the call by publishing things that may work in that genre, but now we're mm-hmm. back. I'm, I'm writing about two thirds of what I normally write, but doing things like show choir and uh, middle school. Yeah. So we're back doing mm-hmm. what we normally do, but. You mentioned John Jacobson yeah. uh, earlier. Um, talk to me about your relationship with John and, and what John has taught you. John, I I was 19 and John was 18 when we met each other. And he came and sang with the Wisconsin Singers. Mm. So I've known him that long. And he went when I went to Texas, he went to Disney. And John worked forever at Disney. He opened Tokyo Disney. He was one of the choreographers and did all this work, traveled all over. And then in our late 20s, because we were still friends, but we didn't work together. And in our late 20s, we got back together and said, let's do some writing together. Or let's, and before we knew it, we were out probably 250 days out of the year doing uh, festivals with, with kids, doing workshops. So I've known John that long, over 40 years. Um, he's exactly the same person he was when he was 19, in a lot of ways, because he's the real deal. Mm. He loves kids, and he loves making a difference in kids' lives. Mm. And um, he taught me a lot. One of my favorite John Jacobson stories, and I've got a jillion of them, but I'll tell this one because it's just. And he laughs every time I tell it. I always embellish it even more and more and more. So it's one of those. <laughs> it's sort of lore now that I don't know how much of it's actually true, but I'm. I don't care. I'm going to tell it anyway because <laughs> we were. We, this is back when um, the, the show City of Angels was on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So, and we were both in New York and I had a really good friend who was in the show and we were going to meet him afterwards for, uh, th- for dinner after the show. So we were at a place across the street and waiting for him to come out. And at the same time, Will Rogers Follies was opening on Broadway. Now this is Cy Coleman, who also wrote City of Angels, also Will, Will Rogers, uh, Adolph Green and Betty Comden, famous mm-hmm. Broadway names. So we're sitting with my friend Bob after City of Angels, and in walks 
Cy Coleman, Betty, Betty Compton, and Adolph Green. I can't speak. And of course, they came over to us because they knew Bob from City of Angels, and they started talking to us. And they sat with us, and I was in Seventh Heaven. Here's Broadway royalty. And I look off, and so it's me and John, Bob, and the three of them. I look at the corner of my eye, and I see a kid standing over there ready to come over, looking for a piece of paper to sign. I thought, oh, well, God, they see, they see these guys, so they're going to get their autographs. So this kid walked over, and I saw Cy Coleman sort of fumble for a pen to sign an autograph. He goes, I wanted to get an autograph. And he said, no, of you. And she, he looked at John and said, no, I want to get your autograph. Because Aww. when I was 16 years old, I did a workshop with you guys, and it changed my life, and now I'm dancing on Broadway. Oh, my god! I wish I could have a dime for every time I've told this story about that's how John affects people that you know and so that was the perfect moment we all laughed about it because i kept thinking do you know who these people are <laughs> but what was important to this kid is that he wanted to thank john again for what he had done for his life so how often does teachers actually get that kind of confirmation many times it's way down the line you don't even yeah. realize what's going on with that 15 year old that's causing that's having issues and things but later on saying ah choir was my safe space Oh yeah. Right. Oh man. It's so, so great. And so tell me yeah. what is something about John that is, uh, just uniquely John Jacobson. <laughs> Boy, you got an hour. <laughs> I remember, and I, I remember where we were, we were, we were very young and we were driving down to Anaheim in my car and we were talking and he looked at me and he said, why would you be ordinary when you can be extraordinary? And I think that is a model for his life. Um, so he, that, it was just, he was authentic. It was a genuine goal in his life, just to always look for that extraordinary moment and being extraordinary in what you do. I think that's, that's maybe the lesson I've kept with me. Why be ordinary if you can be extraordinary, yeah. For the teachers out there who are listening, um, you know, we all want to feel like we're making an impact and sure. that what we do matters because certainly we're not doing it for the money and we're not doing it because it's easy because right. it is a very difficult job to teach. Yep. Um, but you've talked about all these wonderful teachers and, mm -hmm. you know, what do they have in common? What would you say to the teachers out there that are thinking, you know, how do I know if I'm making a difference or what can I do? What is the, what is the thread through all of these people that just really stands oh. out to you? I think a great teacher has and the term I like to use is contagious enthusiasm that they genuinely love the music and they don't have to put on and I think kids can feel and smell that that's what great teaching does and if you can get somebody curious and enthusiastic then you're done your job it's not about singing the right notes all the time but it's just that you know and it's about the, making the music live and having the respect for the music uh, I remember, uh, I don't know which, which teacher told me that, you know, we're only recreative artists. We're recreating someone else's art. As an arranger, I'm recreating an art that was already written by Richard Rogers or Irving Berlin or whoever. And I think mm -hmm. as, as teachers, we're also recreating someone else's art. And that's that respect for the music. I think that's the difference between having a classical background and, and then writing in pop music. You know, mm. that I come to it with that respect for the music. So I think a great teacher passes that on. Mm. 
How can people get a hold of you, Mac, if they if they have questions or um, you know, or do you do you have a website? Oh, I, I do. Know, <laughs> I already know the answer to this, Thank but you, I wanted you to. Be- <laughs> I just redid it too. I just redid it, and I was about to announce it on on uh, on social media. Uh, it's MacHuff.com, and you can contact me from there. Uh, it has everything that's new, and it also has my entire discography, everything I've ever published on the site as well to mm-hmm. look at. So uh, almost. It's a beautiful website. Oh, thank you. Great. Thank you. Yeah, we've been working on it, and uh, it's crazy. Did it, you it, do it? Did you do it? No, or no, 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 no. I worked with, work with somebody else, Dave Hoop, my friend Dave Hooper, who's a great uh, internet guy, and he's been my guy mm-hmm. forever. And I said, I that's one of the things, you know, I never have time to do something like that. And of course the pandemic, I had the time, why don't we just restructure this and decide mm-hmm. how I want to do it. And then I was able to put video on there and, um, and, and put a lot of music if you, yeah. So you can, you can oh. listen to a lot of new stuff. That's great. Yay. Thank you so much for doing that and making that available to everyone. Um, and it's, it is so much easier when the resources are easy to get to. And I mean, you know, I I always think about the, the books that come in the mail or whatever. And I, I would thumb through those and be like, I can read about this, but I can't hear it. So, and that was, so it's really nice to, to be able to, in the era we're in right now, to go to a website, go whatever, and and click on it and get to hear it. Some score, this Hallander has something called score play now, which has changed everything where you can go, you can, you can listen to it and you can see it and you can see Mm. the the different voicings from your home. So, uh, and that's a great thing. So those are the recordings that we do, but everybody gets a, gets a crack at them, which I love that that, that used to be the case. So, uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that that is a huge resource for people. So thank you. Now, is there, is there any question Mac that you wish I would have asked you or that anything that you would like to, to share that you haven't gotten to? I don't think so. I, I I really, every day I'm in touch with teachers every day. I have someone asking me about this. Is there an IPAC about this? Please feel free to email me because I'm here for that reason. I think about what teachers are going through right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I wake up every day thinking about them and how can I make their life easier? How can I do what I do to make this all better for And I also think about kids having some kids, not maybe not having a musical experience because of what's happening in the world right now. And that makes me very sad. So anything I can do to make that happen. Well, I am so grateful to have gotten to spend time with you today. I really appreciate it. And this was just really wonderful to learn about you and all of these people. Well, I'll I'll say one last thing. And just this is personal. I wake up every day with gratitude. You know, I remember as a cocky 15-year-old saying, writing my first arrangement and saying, hey, I may want to do this for a living. Little did I know that I would be for 40 years be doing it for a living and be able to do it with the world's largest music publisher who Mm -hmm. believed in me and gave me every opportunity. So I'm grateful to Hal Leonard and all those people. But I wake up every day thinking, wow, I get to do what I love. And that's something. If you had a piece of advice for someone who wanted to be a composer or arranger, who's thinking about it or at the start of their journey, what what piece of advice would you give them? Um, Boy, that's a good question. I mean, I wouldn't give them advice about necessarily getting published. I mean, but now what's going to happen in the future here is that every, everybody's going to be able to publish their own things and even mm-hmm. copyrights. And people will have, instead of instead of singing my arrangement of Let It Go, for instance, you'll have 
20 arrangements of Let It Go for you to choose from because everybody's going to be, that's, that's where all our industry is going. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people right now to write and publish and get their works out there. Stay true to yourself. Um, I remember Jim Bates would always say to me as well, and this is a hard thing to swallow, don't fall in love with your work. And I would say, what do you mean? He said, no, because you won't grow. Always question and move forward and don't necessarily fall. You can like something that you did, but know that it's going to change. So mm -hmm. that's probably the best advice. And be true to yourself because mm -hmm. there's a lot of people mimicking other people out there and that, that's not necessarily what's going to make, make you successful or give you that feeling of, um, of being able to write and, and grow as a composer or arranger. Mm. Yeah, because things have changed so much in, in the yep. decades. I mean, music has changed so much. Yep. Arranging has changed. Yep. Um, we would talk about the, the music with the, you know, the colorful, the yellow and the right. like, the pictures of the composers and arrangers and things like that. I mean, music has, it's changed a lot. And, and you might be the person who's going to change it even more, you know, in a... Um, so yeah, to not want to mimic somebody else and to be your own person is such an important message. So it is. It's, it's very easy to not do that. It's very easy to be insecure and, and veer another way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the people that I know that are the most successful tap into that, of who they are and what, what they love about what they're doing. That's great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so You're much, so Mac. You're welcome, Megan. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Sing, Coach, Conduct. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button.